The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, social, and political inequality. We hope you will listen. Today, host David Bell is now on part three of his exciting justice series. In part one, he spoke with Dion Sankar, Chief Deputy Prosecutor at the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office, about justice for stakeholders in that system. In part two, he spoke with Erica Andrade of El Centro concerning her thoughts on justice in her community. Today, David Bell will talk with Madeline Johnson, co-founder and managing partner of Missouri-Kansas Queer Law. They discuss the meaning of justice for individuals whose identities may not fit neatly into well-defined categories. There is strong argument that gender identity should be a protected characteristic under the law, but that position is not generally held. Just 40 years ago, every state in the country had a criminal sodomy law. Openly gay people faced discrimination with no legal recourse, and many members of the community remained closeted out of fear. Times are changing, and the legal standing of LGBTQ people has never been better. Issues of family law, civil rights, health care rights, and hate crimes need legal advocacy and open discussion in the courts. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Please stay tuned in and hear our show. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. We're in the middle of our justice series, and we began with Dion Sankar from the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office, providing us with a framework to think about the concept. Next, we talk with Erica Andrande, CEO and President of El Centro, about justice within the Latino community. Today, we're going to go a step further to help us understand justice from the perspective of a community whose members may not fit neatly into the labels used by the greater society, or if they do, they may actually appear to move from one label to another. To help us with our discussion, we welcome Madeline Johnson, who, along with Alex Pearson, founded Missouri-Kansas Queer Law earlier this year. Madeline is currently the managing partner of MKQL, which is dedicated to serving the LGBTQ plus population in legal matters ranging from civil rights and discrimination to domestic matters, family planning, estate planning, business services, and other legal situations that impact persons who do not comport with traditional sex stereotypes. Madeline is one of Missouri's first openly transgender attorneys. Madeline, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. I think first, if you could help our listeners with a little bit of background about yourself, then I would ask so we can narrow our focus to the conversation at hand. Did you speak a little bit about your experience that would eventually culminate in transition and then eventually culminate with you being here? Thank you. Yeah. For sure. I grew up in Kansas City to Ickman Mills High School many years ago when it was still a functioning high school. Um, it's closed now. Uh, my career path or educational line career path took uh, a route through the military, serving four years in the Army 
then going back to college to the University of Missouri, where I got my undergraduate degree and a master's degree. Stepped away from school for a few years to work for the Red Cross, and then went back to school to get a law degree in the early 2000s. And after that, uh, I worked at the Public Defender's Office, which is where I met you, actually. And got some good experience working under you as a second chair in a couple of matters. And then following my time at the Public Defender's Office, I went into private practice. And eventually, once I reached the time of my transition, it was a rather scary time um, in my entire life, not just the legal career. But as I was moving through navigating life, private practice, divorce, uh, new relationship, things of that matter, then... It's not like I just discovered suddenly that I was transgender. It was more like a, a very known feeling, a known set of feelings that have been with me all my life that came rushing back all at once. And this time being, you know, time more forcefully than ever before. And that's, this would have been 2000, early 2012 when I was finally hit with this realization that I couldn't continue living a fake life and denying who I was trying to be someone who was assigned male at birth and it never working, never working correctly, never working right, never feeling right, just feeling off constantly was something I finally had to face and deal with. I had reached a point where kind of wishing to get a reboot, so to speak. I am a believer that we live multiple lives and in reincarnation. So it was kind of, to me, it was kind of like a let's end this life and start over again uh, in the right body kind of experience. But then I just, one day it did dawn on me what if I could actually complete a transition to being my true self? And once I accepted that idea or that possibility, it just kind of all came rushing out, if that makes sense. It felt to me like a a huge pressure relief to those around me. I think it probably felt a bit like an explosion of my life, kind of turning everything upside down all at once. And there were some some positive supportive reactions and some very negative reactions among uh, family and friends. People who I thought were going to hate me actually were some of my biggest supporters and people who I thought were going to be some of my biggest supporters turned out to be some of the people who were most against it. That was all in 2012 when that began. And in 2013, I completed my social transition and began living full-time as as Madeline Johnson and switched my law practice from the old name to my new name. And it's been moving upward ever since, not without a few valleys. There's certainly been a few valleys because even through transition, we still take our old selves with us. So there are still a lot of those old issues to deal with, but transitioning gets one very major one out of the way for sure and clears it up and opens space for you to become more of a whole person and begin to working on those issues that could never get appropriate attention before transition because there was too many other things in the way. I've got the impression when we spoke before that this idea that, that you weren't living your true self began much earlier in life. Could you briefly kind of describe what was going on in your mind and your body at that time to help the listeners kind of understand what would come to fruition later on in your life? Sure. I can remember thinking as early as four that I should have been a girl. Why, why is everyone telling me I'm a boy and why am I not allowed to do certain things just because... People are telling me I'm a boy and boys don't do those things and boys don't have easy bake ovens, boys don't sew, things that I wanted to do that my mother was doing that I wanted to do with her, but was quickly redirected towards G.I. Joe's and Hot Wheels cars and things like that. So I knew very early on, and one of my first experiences was, (laughs) I'm dating myself here quite a bit, but in the early 70s on Saturday morning cartoons, CBS used to have this little program called In the News for Kids. 
and they would have different news stories about what was in current current issues explained for kids. One of those was Renee Richards, uh, the trans woman who sued to play professional t- women's tennis. On, uh, on the, she sued the USTA. And I remember seeing her and footage of her playing tennis and thinking, wow, there's somebody else out there like me. There's somebody who you could actually do this. You can switch. And just being fascinated with that. And that was, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how old I was at that time. Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, maybe, when I saw that. Uh, and that's kind of where the, the idea of a possibility began. But still, growing up in a very conservative family, conservative Protestant Christian family, Southern Baptist family, anytime I tried to express anything feminine, I was redirected very quickly towards boy-appropriate activities, boy-appropriate clothing. I did try to reach out and explain to my mother that I wanted to wear girls' clothing at times, and it was quickly told, no, that's, that's for girls, that's not for you. You're a boy. You, you shop over here in this part of the store. So, yeah, any efforts that I made in my childlike understanding to try to express who I was were quickly rebuffed and quickly redirected. Then, of course, later, growing up in the, uh, and going to school in the late 70s and through the 80s to the mid-80s, in the Midwest here, it did not feel safe to be open about who I was because I can remember the few kids in school who, whether they were open about their sexuality or not, other people knew who or suspected who the gay kids were. And they got, they didn't get beaten up physically in the school I went to, but they did get talked about, gossiped about, harassed in the hallways, made fun of for their appearance. The gay boys got harassed for looking too effeminate. The, the couple of lesbian girls got harassed for looking too butch. You described an incident, I know, at the mall one time. You were walking with a friend of yours. What was that? Yeah, this was in, when I was in high school. I did, in comply, attempting to comply with the direction of my parents, I would shop in you know the male clothing sections, but I would shop at the Gap, and I would shop at... Uh, the merry-go-round and at other places that and I would looked often for the most feminine looking items I could find and I found a pair of boots that were ostensibly you know men's boots but they were very very cute in my opinion very rather feminine in appearance effeminate and I bought them uh, with my own money from a job that I had when I was in high school and I wore them around quite a bit and I, I did get heckled in the parking lot of Bannister Mall by somebody who made a comment. I remember the comment as, as well as I can was something along the lines of, I've seen more manly boots than that on a woman. And I never f- saw the person or was able to identify who the speaker was, if they were yelling at me from a car or from a truck or something in the parking lot. It was outside the mall. And my friend and I were walking. We stopped for a second, looked around, didn't see anybody. So we just kept on walking. And this person, this man, this person with a very deep male voice continued yelling after us as we went into the mall, and then we went about our, our way. So, I, yeah, I, I was heckled over my appearance um, as a rather effeminate-looking boy in my teen years. You described transitioning. The physical change m- may have been part of it, but that's only one aspect of transitioning, it, it, at least as you've explained it to me. If you could kind of help the listeners with that as well. Sure. In addition to the physical or the medical transition, Medical, and, medical transition involves um, taking hormones, hormone blockers, to get your body regulating and, and producing hormones at the appropriate level for the identified sex. 
to feel more congruent in your body, at least chemically, for starters. Then, uh, in addition to that, there can be surgeries to correct the uh, correct anatomy to so that one can feel more congruent physically in their body and their out, the outward look or appearance of their body. Obviously, at this point, maybe one day someone could actually go through sex reassignment surgery and be able to have a child afterwards. But right now, we can't do that. Uh, so. We're limited with a, a body of being someone who was biologically male, but has been reconstructed to look like a female body. And, and so in your personal experience, it was, was it making it known to friends and family first, followed by a change in, for example, dress or wardrobe so that you started to wear the clothes that you wanted to, perhaps started wearing makeup? How would you describe that initial part of your personal experience? Yeah, that's the social trans- transition that you're talking, as you're speaking of, and that typically happens before the medical transition or before the completion of the medical transition. It often happens in conjunction with or shortly after beginning hormone replacement therapy. So, switching to outwardly appearing and living and moving in society as a person of the 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 sex that you feel that you know yourself to be, the gender identity that is the core of your being, that's the core of who you are. So yeah, in, in 2012, I began to, at least on a part-time basis, express myself as a woman and dress as a woman. And slowly as I came out over time to clients and to the court and to uh, peers and colleagues in the bar, then uh, eventually I, I picked a date to which point I would complete my social transition and live full-time as Madeline Johnson. And uh, that's what I did, basically. And that can be a very awkward and confusing period when you feel like you're back and forth in in kind of a no-person's land between the two uh, sexes when you're feeling comfortable and like your real self when you're not at work, but when you're having to put on a suit and tie to go to court and feel the the constraints or the straitjacketing of the old person that never felt like the, the right or real person to begin with, that can be very disconcerting and very distressing. It can be a very stressful time period. You know, when I saw you a few months ago for the first time in, you know, 15 years, I think, uh, we were at a speaking engagement together and I came up to you and I didn't know who you were. I didn't think I did. And you indicated, I introduced myself to you and you said, you know, David, we used to work together. And you told me, you know, the name that you used at, at that time. And it got me thinking about something that I'd ask you to help me with. I was thinking back to our relationship when we worked together as a public defenders. Your physical appearance was not part of that relationship. It was irrelevant in a way, right? Because you were just, we're attorneys working together. It didn't really matter, I guess, maybe if I'm saying that right. And today, when I see you, we're two attorneys. Again, your physical appearance, to a certain extent, is irrelevant to me. But then at the same time, it's really relevant to you. And so I'm trying to understand that. Because at, at some point, there's this true person that doesn't is not impacted at least in my worldview by appearance but at the same time it certainly was or is impactful to you as the person experiencing it so if you could help me understand that that is a very difficult question to answer or at least from my perspective sure. because i'm keenly aware that my lived experience is my own experience and my feeling of my outward expression of who i am the outward physical appearance of who i am is a big part of that and at the same time, I understand why does it matter? Why should it matter? But it does. And it does very much to persons who are transgender. We want to feel we want to feel like we are moving in society and in culture in the way that best represents ourselves. 
And part of that does include a physical appearance, an outward appearance of being either male or female. So it's it's a very much a, an internal part of who I am as a person um, and just a sense of, of knowing that this is the right way for me to move in the world and the right way for me to be in the world. Yeah, our physical body, from my perspective, my physical body is the is a manner in which I interact with the world, meaning I've got a physical body. I can't separate from that. So it's the way in which I interact with the world and perhaps the way in which I, you know, reach my full potential, whatever that is, kind of self-actualization. It's it's just a mechanism by which I become who I am or, or a greater version of myself. So in that respect, it is important. But from the perspective of me looking at you or someone else, your physical appearance or whatever is not is is relevant to your personal journey. And maybe that's where it becomes so important. But not it's not that's not necessarily how I experience you. I don't know. Maybe I'm I know I'm getting a little bit too. I mean, that's okay. it's a radio show, but I, I certainly these are issues we're going to talk about in a sec on a more more basic level as we talk about justice. But I just wanted to kind of take it here for a moment. Yeah, perhaps getting into a little bit of the actual physical sensations or the feelings of what's going on are warranted here. Everybody has body issues going through puberty and the teen years and things like that. But for a trans person, it can be extreme because you're going through a puberty that is unwanted uh, for the sex that you don't want, that you don't feel you are, that you don't feel is correct. So there is a certain grossness to developing excessive unwanted body hair, to having an appendage that you feel is gross and something that is, is loathed. It's not just a simple feature that's loathed about your body. It's not like having a birthmark in one place. And I don't mean to make light of um, sure. other you know, physical features that people have issues with in their own body images, but there's such a liberation on the other side, at least for me there was, on the other side of having gender confirmation surgery and getting rid of an ugly, disgusting penis to have a surgically constructed vagina. But there's such a liberation in that, such a a feeling of freedom and even to this day years later it's like wow if i if i stop to think about it i still feel a tremendous amount of relief and satisfaction and comfort in being in a body that is at least more now outwardly more correct than it was before and and, and maybe that's the answer meaning it's this the respect for you for your own lived experience to decide that right ultimately that's it maybe that's the mo- from my perspective that's the answer right you it's more liberating, and there it is. Like that, yes. that, that discussion ends, right? <laughs> That's, and I appreciate you sharing this with us. So let's talk now. Talk for a second about what justice means to you. So if I just say the word justice, Madeline, what does it mean? Justice means the right to be a human being, the right to be a person, and the right to be to have your existence validated, not by every person who's in the world, but the right to exist as I see fit, the right to guide my life and to be me. And I see that as justice for any any person, is the right to be the, the right to be yourself, the right to exist, the right to pursue your happiness, the right to pursue the life that you desire for your that what that uh, any one person desires for themselves. That is justice, and being able to do so without fear of without fear of someone actively seeking to inhibit you or prohibit you from the right to pursue your own happiness, the right to pursue a living the right to exist. Basically, discrimination occurs when one group or one person tells another that your way of being or your way of existing or who you are because of 
an innate sense of yourself or because of a particular physical trait is wrong and incorrect and you don't deserve the same opportunities as my group does. You don't deserve the same treatment as my group does. In fact, you are less than we are and we're going to put you down for it. We're going to harm you. We're going to harm you physically. We're going to harm you economically. We're going to harm you emotionally. And we're going to just expect you to put up with it and be okay with the fact that we're superior to you. Justice occurs when we get redress for those wrongs. When when we push back and we stand firm in our truths of who we are, and we say to those who would oppress us, I am who I am, and what you've done to us is wrong, what you've done to this, what you've done to me is wrong, what you've done to my client is wrong, and there needs to be an effort to make the person that you've done this to whole. You know, it dawned on me, my inability to, either the desire to or the inability to place someone in a specific category as created by society, and whatever anxiety may arise as a result of that, that's my problem, right? It's not your problem. And I wonder, and if you could address this, if some of the work you deal with is the failure of me, and this, I'm saying the general me, of being able to deal with that anxiety in a healthy way. Absolutely. I think that people who discriminate against others, and especially, and particularly when they discriminate against members of the LGBT community, they are looking at a person who is attempting to live an authentic life, a person who is attempting to be themselves truly, whether that is in their sexual orientation or their gender identity or um, anything else related to queerness. The, the discriminator is someone who is triggered by seeing someone step outside of uh, of what is comfortable to other people and daring to be themselves. So the discriminator, in my opinion, is someone who has chosen a life of self-oppression. They've chosen to constrain themselves to a set of beliefs or a set of uh, behaviors or codes of conduct that are oppressive to them as a person. They inhibit them from being and expressing their true authentic self in some way, whether that's you know repressed queerness or something else, anything else it could be they are not comfortable with someone else living an authentic life because they're reminded of their own choice to live a suppressed or an oppressed life. Mm. And I think there's a jealousy there behind it. And there is a, a desire to target persons for daring to be authentic versus conforming to what others have told them to be. When we come back on the second half of our hour, we're going to talk a little more specifically about how some of the concepts we talked about here in the first half hour play out on the ground, if you will, in real employer-employee situations, some things you've seen, some cases, big cases that have gone to the Missouri Supreme Court as an example, and what change that is bringing about in our society. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Support for KKFI brought to you by the Center for Arts and Letters at Rockhurst University, welcoming audiences to events including concerts, poetry readings, book discussions, fine art exhibitions, lectures, workshops, and more. Learn more at rockhurst.edu forward slash center dash arts dash letters. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kklfi.org slash podcasts. 
says ordinary people can't make a difference? Regular people started their own community radio station in Kansas City. KKFI has been on the air now for over 30 years because supported by the community. KKFI's history is online at kkfistory.org. That's kkfistory.org. Here's the calendar for the week of December 4th. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend. For example, Wednesday, December 6th, 5 to 7 p.m., there's an individual members mixer at the Combine, 2999 Troost, Kansas City, Missouri. Please come if you're a member or if you'd like to be a member of More Square. More information on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. Decarcerate KC says this holiday season, you can support kids of parents who are incarcerated by donating toys between now and December 8th. The drop-off location is Black Plus Brown Bookstore, 104.5 West 39th Street, Kansas City, Missouri, from noon to 6 p.m. Go to Decarcerate KC on Facebook with any questions. Wednesday, December 6, 7 to 8.30 p.m., live at the Lead Center, 1600 Stewart Drive, Lawrence, Kansas, or on Zoom, Nicole Fleetwood, author of Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, gives a presentation that powerfully documents the inner lives and creative visions of men and women rendered invisible by Americans' prisons. Nicole Fleetwood is the James Weldon Johnson Professor of Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University. More information at calendar.ku.edu. Friday, December 8th, noon to 1 p.m., Empower Missouri's Friday Forum will be gearing up for the 2024 legislative session that will begin in January. You can join this virtual Friday Forum to get a preview of legislation that's been pre-filed and what the focus is for 2024. Go to empowermissouri.org. Saturday, December 9th, noon to 2, Mothers of Incarcerated Sons and Daughters KC asks you to join them at Plexport, Westport Commons, easy to find at 300 East 39th Street, Kansas City, Missouri, Annex A Meeting Room, with convenient parking and much more. Sessions offer information, actions are shared, and much, much more. Everyone's welcome, mothers and others. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. Items on this calendar can also be found on this episode's page at the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Please take care of yourselves and others. Stay safe. Be kind to each other. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to the program. David Bell speaking with Madeline Johnson, a founding attorney with Missouri-Kansas Queer Law. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Madeline Johnson, along with Alex Pearson. She's the founder of Missouri-Kansas Queer Law. In the first half hour, we'll be talking about the concept of justice in her community and in her work. And the second half hour, we'll talk about how that plays out on the ground. And what I mean by that is in employer-employee relationships and in the courtroom. And let's talk briefly about terms as we, then I want to move into at least one of the cases that you've worked on, but I know there's a few. The term sexual identity versus sexual orientation, 
I know in our original discussion, you talked about who you desire to be uh, as a person in physical body versus who you may be attracted to sexually. If you could help us with briefly with those terms, then maybe start to talk about how that has played out in one of your cases. Sure. I view sexual orientation as who do you want to go to bed with? And gender identity is who are you when you go to bed or who are you when you get out of bed in the morning? Who do you express in the world? The two are, interestingly, not connected. They're different phenomena. Sexual orientation is about who you want to be with in a sexual capacity. And gender identity is about who you want to move as in the world. And at the same time, both of those are ways of being in the world that do not comport with traditional sex stereotypes, if that makes sense. Sure. And I'm using some terms of art, legal terms of art. Uh, failing, failure to comport with traditional sex stereotypes is part of a standard that we attain to, you know, we have to prove in a, in a court of law when we're bringing a case of sex discrimination based on either sexual orientation or gender identity. And sexual orientation cases, I think it's a little more clear that the the traditional sex stereotype is that persons should only be attracted to sexually to persons of the opposite sex, or we say the opposite sex, but that um, very much establishes a sexual binary that uh, says there are only two sexes and that and that somehow male and female are opposites instead of complementary mm. sexes. With gender identity, it is you know discriminating against someone because they are they may have been assigned one sex at birth, someone based on the appearance of their genitalia. When they were born, a doctor said, this is a boy, uh, but they choose to outwardly express it as a girl uh, as they grow up, then that is failure to comport with traditional sex stereotypes or behaving in ways that society has deemed as appropriate for boys to behave by wearing clothing that doesn't match with society's idea of boy or wearing haircuts that don't match. Uh, and the same would be true for a, a trans male person or a trans boy. It would be someone who's assigned female at birth, but who is just adamant that they, uh, you know, they do not fit with those female stereotypes. In the letter that you wrote on behalf of a victim, transsexual woman who was beaten, defendant was later prosecuted for doing that. And you wrote a letter at the request of the prosecutor's office. You used the term a woman of transgender experience. Yes. I believe it's the term. And I, I, that caught my eye as interesting because it, it suggests a, a number of things. But I'm curious, when you use that term, what does that mean? I use that term that way because, first and foremost, I'm a woman. Um, I happen to have a transgender experience. It's a recognition of, of a person being a woman, whether they were assigned the sex of female at birth or whether they have been through transition and, and identify as a woman. It is a statement that trans women are women. And we just happen to have had a transgender experience. I would say the same of a trans man, or I would, say I would consider that person to be a man, a male of transgender experience. Someone who's, well, the, the client that I represented in the case that we're going to be talking about was a, a man, a male person. And we started the case with the approach that when, when he was still in school, this is a boy. This is not a girl. This is a boy. And we are moving forward representing him as a boy. He just happened to have had a transgender experience. And so we describe it in that way because it's, it is expressive of the validity of a person's stated gender identity. Could you briefly now talk about this case? This was a case where a, a person born was assigned gender of female at birth. Yes. And then transitioned to a boy. Yes. And if you could describe briefly, factually, what the case was about, and then maybe a little bit about what's happened legally. The case was about 
his school denying him access to the boys' restrooms and locker rooms after he transitioned. I'm hesitant to to mention too much about identities and things because the case is still ongoing. We're in our ninth year of litigation at this point. We're at the Court of Appeals for the third time after having been to the state Supreme Court before and had a jury trial in the matter. And maybe we can talk generally about the cases like it. The issue of restrooms seems to come up or or locker rooms or or whatever it may be. And so you have someone who has transitioned, let's say from a, a girl to a boy or a boy to a girl, and they want to use the restroom or locker room of who they are, right? And there's some pushback on it. Either it's to create a, like, you're going to be in your own personal restroom. That's not going to be the girl's restroom or the boy's, or I don't know what, or they're going to force you into the one you were born or assigned at birth. Is that the general issue? And then yes. what's the what's the legal issue then that, that arises as a result of that? The legal issue is whether or not a person is recognized as, they're, as, they're, as they are, as they as a person declares themselves to be, as a person knows themselves to be. It's about legal recognition for a trans person, a person of transgender experience, to be male or female. It's about acceptance in the world as a, a man or a woman or a, ma- a boy or a girl. It is about, you know, well, if, if someone goes through the, the steps of transition and completes their, the changes to the extent they have a, an updated name and an updated birth certificate, At what point are they legally considered under the law to be male or female? Uh, Certainly, a birth certificate has some legal ramification to it. My understanding is the origins of birth certificates were used to track persons for the purposes of voter suppression of persons of color. So they had a a nefarious beginning to begin with, but they have had legal weight ever since they came into being and came into creation uh, in this country. What's the statute generally in Missouri that would deal with issues that we're talking about. The issue we went to the Supreme Court on was whether or not the Missouri Human Rights Act protected transgender persons under the protected class of sex. And we took the position that, yes, it does and should. It should automatically. It protects anybody who is impacted because of their sex. And we advanced the argument that a person's sex cannot be divorced from the equation when someone discriminates against them because they are transgender. Sex is directly impacted because they're not comporting with traditional sex stereotypes. As, as we began this case back in 2014, we discovered there is some case law from the Supreme Court addressing sex stereotyping and discriminating against someone because of their sex stereotypes, so their failure to comport with traditional sex stereotypes is sex discrimination. It wasn't a majority opinion, it was a plurality opinion in the Price Waterhouse, but that decision did establish that sex stereotyping is illegal sex discrimination. So that's the seminal case from which we started. So, so let me make sure I understand this. If in my behavior, I don't comport with traditional sex stereotypes, for example, if I might, if my traditional sex stereotype is a male and I wear women's clothing or maybe appear at what the term may be effeminate, that if I'm discriminated based on that, that is sex discrimination under this statute? Yes. Yeah. But that's, re- that's notwithstanding what my birth certificate says. It sounds Correct. like. Okay. But what you're talking about, I believe, is a, is a case where the birth certificate was actually changed to comport with the transgender. Yes, yes. Our client had, had a birth certificate stating he's male, and the school district in question was accommodating up to a point. They did allow him to use his preferred name, and at the point at which he was able to produce a court order 
showing he had changed his name through that means of attaining a, a legal name change. They changed his records to change his name, and then they represented that they were going to uh, once they had once an amended birth certificate was in place that they would then allow him access to boys' restrooms and locker rooms and and be able to compete on in boys' athletics fully as as a boy. They did allow him to compete in boys' athletics, but it became impractical to do so because of the other restrictions imposed upon him. Um, so eventually our client decided not to do that through his high school career. But yeah, they were, there was a moving, a constant moving of the goalposts. There was a promise made that, well, yeah, this is all we need to protect ourselves from liability and then things will be fine. But then we'd reach that stage and the district would move the goalposts back a little bit further, just a little bit further, just a little bit further. Got the birth certificate and then all of a sudden they decided, well, we, we've decided our, the, the district policy is and has always been actually, whether even though it's not written, uh, has always been that we were going to go with the birth certificate that is provided to us upon enrollment. And because this person's birth certificate said female when they enrolled in kindergarten with us, now that he has a document that says he's legally male, had a, a court judgment and a birth certificate, we're still not going to recognize that and we're still not going to let him use the boys' restrooms and locker rooms. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking to myself, how many people are in the position of your client? And to the extent, and I'm going to imagine, it's it's got to be a relatively small number of people, the amount of resources and pushback from greater society, it seems disproportionate to the amount of people. It, it, it would almost be, well, certainly my worldview would be better, but, but it would almost be easier just to let people be who who they are and not make such a big deal about it. But I don't know, is it a relatively small number of people? Percentage-wise, yes. It's estimated to be somewhere around or a little or less than 1% of the population is actually transgender. And I think that also includes intersex, intersex persons, persons who are born with a verif- with a, either with you know both genitalia or partially formed genitalia of one or both sexes, um, or who have other internal indicators that... Uh, indicate that they have attributes of both sexes within one body. That's a that's a different issue all in, in itself or a different thing. But, but yeah, roughly 1%, um, which is not a lot percentage-wise. But if you think about that in terms of a billion, 1% of a billion is 1 million. Sure. So it's a significant number of people. How many people are there in the United States? I, I guess it could be, but in terms of the amount of resources, it seems that are put towards pushing back against somebody who wants to be in the boys' locker room or the girls' locker room, it just seems inordinate amount. And I, it it almost, I'm trying to understand the motivation behind the pushback is what. It's an easy target. I think it's an easy way to score political points for people on the far right. Um, Honestly, I can tell you this, that statistically, I'm at least, and this is anecdotal, I don't have anything in front of me to back this up at the moment, but I believe statewide in the state of Missouri, there are eight students who are trans, who have had a transgender experience, who are wanting to participate in athletics. We have this screwy law that says now if you are if you were assigned female at birth you must participate if you want to participate in athletics it's good it's you're limited to co-ed or girls sports if you were assigned male at birth co-ed or male sports that's that's it we're not going to allow anybody to compete in their identified gender eight such athletes statewide six of those are boys of transgender experience two of those are girls of transgender experience so so a law was passed by the legislature yes to go after eight people essentially yes Essentially, it seems like there's probably a lot of other issues we could be working on, other than going after eight. And it's not only eight people; it's eight like children. Or it sounds like yes. or eight, eight children to to go after. My understanding is the justification for it was to protect girls' athletics and women's sports. Well, in doing so, what they've done is they've created a situation where six athletes in Missouri are going to have 
an unfair competitive advantage because they are boys of transgender experience who have been taking testosterone and have bodies that are developing as they, they give them physical advantages over, uh, I don't want to use the term cisgender, which is a person who is not transgender, uh, cisgender girls. So by passing this statute in the name of protecting girls, they've actually potentially hindered girls to some degree. So what, what you're saying, just so our listeners are clear, these are persons that are assigned the gender of girl at birth. Yes. That 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 are transitioning to or have are transitioning to male or have transitioned or have transitioned to male and in doing so we're taking testosterone yes but because of this law they are forced to compete as girls or as women there and by as a result of taking the testosterone they have an unfair advantage so the very law that's there to protect girls has done the exact opposite in this case at least yes the current the way it is in Missouri right now yes I have a client who is currently who we are pursuing legal action based on the state prohibiting him from participating in boys' athletics. And, and without getting anything to specifics, certainly if there's any ongoing litigation, but on the concept of justice, I'm trying to figure out what justice looks like. I guess part of me is you can't get the courts to make a group of people understand more or be more empathetic or be willing to to allow people to live as they are. It seems like that that's almost an unreachable goal, at least in a, on one particular lawsuit. And, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, and then if I am right or wrong, what is justice in a case like that? Sometimes justice is about an individual and an individual person's right to to be, to participate, to exist, and to pursue an endeavor that they want to pursue, whether they excel at it or not. There seems to be this great notion around fairness in competition and in athletics and prohibiting trans athletes from participating as their identified gender because uh, all in the name of fairness. Well, athletic competition, when you really look at it, I don't think has ever been fair. As much as I would love to be able to throw a football like Patrick Mahomes, I right. will never be able to do so. Is that fair? I don't know. I mean, that Patrick Mahomes was born with all these physical gifts. And is it is it fair? He's got this tremendous advantage to be able to do what he does that nobody else can do. You know, it's, it's and what we're doing is just choosing to single people out based on the fact that they were born with one set of genitals. As they grew up, they discovered that they don't identify with that assignment that was given to them or made for them without any of their input. So what is fair? What is ultimately fair? And so from from a justice standpoint, then, what about the ability of these cases, certainly from the standpoint of the individual and being able to live their authentic selves, that seems to me, at least based on our conversation in the past and today, is part of the justice equation. But what about the ability of these cases to change the minds, the hearts, the thoughts of others, the, the, the majority society that is imposing these unnecessary restrictions, if you will, on on these individuals. It seems like, in my view, justice would certainly would certainly hope to 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 change that as well. Yeah, I'm maybe the best way I can describe that is I'm not sure we can change. There are some minds we just can't change. Hmm. We never will be able to change. In my belief, the greater population who are not impacted by this issue probably don't care a lot about it because they they're not impacted by this issue. And until it's brought to their attention they are probably unaware of a lot of the wrongs that are perpetrated against persons of transgender experience. So ultimately what it comes down to is a little bit of an economic analysis. When a company or a school chooses to look the other way, when someone within its organization starts discriminating against another person, the fact that they have to pay a judgment or a settlement in order to redress those wrongs that are done, often in my opinion does get attention of people who can affect a change, who can affect 
policies and institute, implement cultures in the workplace or in the schools that are conducive to equality, conducive to equal treatment and equal opportunity for all persons to be able to thrive and succeed. And when you hit their bottom line, you get their attention. When they have to pay money, you get their attention. So that is one way that I believe we are affecting change, is that we are getting the attention of people who may be somewhat ambivalent towards the situation, but when they actually are forced to look at it, their eyes are opened and they see, oh, we need to correct this. We make, we make a change, let's fix it, and let's do the right thing going forward. There are those people out there who, like I said, will, will never change their mind, will always be full of hate and will continue to hate, and suing them is going to do no good. It's just going to make them angrier. So in that sense, justice is getting the attention of the people who can create and affect a change in work environment or a change in an educational environment and who are willing to recognize when wrongs have been done and they're willing to redress those wrongs and make the changes to move forward. In those situations, that's when true justice occurs. You know, I really appreciate that explanation, Melon, and, and because it's given me a new kind of look as follows. My thought originally was, well, how's it getting a bunch of money paid by a district going to change? But what you've said and makes sense to me is as follows. I'm going to believe that a super majority of people in the United States are generally good people. I mean, we live as a society, I think, generally speaking, good. But as you indicated, there's, there's certainly an idea that, well, if it's not really affecting me personally, then I'm just not going to worry about it, which I think there's a little bit of a naivety there because certainly it does affect all of us, right? If we're all human beings, we're all connected, that pain to you should be felt as pain to me, but it's not, I mean, for the most people. And so what the lawsuit seems to do, and then the, the potential that a money judgment seems to you, it, it seems to be a way of kind of raising your hand and saying, no, you need to pay attention to this issue. This is an important issue. At first, you're going to think it's important because it may cost you a bunch of money. Right. But, I, in, but part of what I'm hearing is, is, is the hope would be that while that may get the attention of people, if a supermajority of people are good, which I think they are, that once they see the pain and the harm that the behaviors are, are causing, and maybe unintentionally, they just don't realize the, this, the impact, that that can effectuate change. Absolutely. And maybe that is, well, it sounds like that, that could be part of justice. Yes, I think that is part of justice. It's when we get, yeah, anytime I'm able to get a settlement for a client or win a court victory for a client, then I think that's in the interests of justice and serves justice. Can we talk really quick about civil cases that involve employer-employee? One of the things that I've learned from you is that in these cases, there is a, if an employer does not respect a person's sexual identity, that that can wind up I don't know, maybe outing the person potentially in a way that they're not comfortable with. And then that then causes additional anxiety and trouble at work from other employees. Absolutely. What, what is that process that happens? And it sounds like you've handled these type of cases and it's somewhat frequent. Yes. Well, I think the situation you're talking about is where um, an employer refuses to recognize a person's identity, refuses to use their chosen name or their preferred name refuses to issue credentials under the excuse that they have to have a what they call a legal name change, failing to recognize that the states of Missouri, Kansas, and federal government all recognize common law name changes. And so the person who comes to them and represents that I want to be called this has already affected a legal name change. They do so at the risk of, of outing their employee or their student to the rest of the population that they're working with or attending school with. And in doing so, they invite bullying, they invite further discrimination, they invite the the haters to hate. And then that results in what, a hostile work environment or yes. discrimination based on their failure to comport yes. with... traditional sex stereotypes. Yes. 
One example that we, we have talked about is when is one of my cases where an employee was subsequently assaulted at work after the employer refused to issue uh, a badge in the employee's preferred name and continued to put their dead name, what we refer to as a dead name, an old name, on the schedule. So people were wondering, well, who is who is this person? And then they find out it's oh, it's this this is a dead name associated with this person. This person's gone through sex transition, through gender transition, and it results in a, a physical attack. And of course, again, as I'm thinking through this, sexual identity, at least in this particular instance, or the the putting one name versus another on it, has nothing to do with job performance. Correct. It has nothing to do with anything that they're being paid to do. Right. And so it becomes a an issue that really could be just a non-issue if they just allow the person to be who they are. Right. The discriminators create issues by claiming it's it's a distraction, by making the distraction itself a a discriminant an act of discrimination. I see. They give life to what they give life to it. To what is a, a difference potentially, but we're all different. I mean, mm-hmm. just by the very nature, we're all different. By focusing the spotlight on that difference, the spotlight's not being focused by the individual. It's being focused by the discriminator. Yes. Turning it into a much bigger issue, and then I assume that's projected then on the individual. Why are you doing this? Why are you making a big deal about this? Absolutely. Absolutely. They accuse the individual of being a distraction in the workplace, and then they use that as a pretext for dismissing them or disciplining them. Um, That's just one example I've seen many, many times over. The whole attempt to justify not issuing credentials or putting using a person's preferred name just really blows my mind because in the same handwritten schedule I've seen where they refuse to use my client's preferred name, there will be preferred nicknames of other persons who are non-transgender. And it's like, okay, so you want to, you're perfectly willing to use a shortened version or a nickname for somebody that, or even a full nickname that doesn't even match the person's actual name that appears on their tax documents or something, for example, but you're unwilling to extend that same courtesy to a transgender person. I see. It sounds like it maybe goes back to the same. There's this discomfort. I can't place you in a particular category. That's going to make me uncomfortable. And rather than me dealing with whatever discomfort there is to me, I'm going to project it out and try to deal with you instead. Yes. Well said. Yeah. Um, Madeline, if our listeners want to learn more about you and about the work that you and Alex Pearson do, where, where do they go? www.mocanqueerlaw.com. That's M-O-K-A-N-Q-U-E-E-R-L-A-W.com. Madeline, I really appreciate you sharing your personal experiences and your professional experiences with us today. Absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on your show. You're listening to David Bell on Jaws of Justice, 90.1 KKFI. Welcome to Flyover Country and the Not Another Midwest Millennial Political Show. I'm your host and moderator, Mark Emanuel, from affiliate KZGM in Kabul, Missouri. In this show, we discuss and debate, and sometimes agree on, the political topics of the current and already outdated news cycle. Let me welcome today's panel, starting with this woman, a mother of four who previously worked as an accountant in multiple roles and holds an MBA from the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Please welcome Mrs. Carolyn Brogdon. Hi, it's great to be here. Our next panelist is an urban planning expert who works with local and regional leaders on issues related to housing and urban development. His advocacy has been published in the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, and Politico magazine. Please welcome Mr. Kyle Smith. Happy to be here. 
Our final panelist is a senior editor at The Bulwark, who previously worked for the GOP on Capitol Hill. Please welcome Mr. Jim Swift. Great to be back, Mark. Anti-LGBTQ and transgender laws are being passed in states across the country. Meanwhile, polls show that 71% of Americans view gay rights favorably. So my question to the panel, why is the GOP using this as a wedge issue and steamrolling laws into states where they can? Carolyn, we're going to start with you. The simple answer is that the Republican Party has been out of ideas for the past 40 years. So the only thing they can do is start culture wars to people off. This is old news. They've been doing this my whole entire life. You know, right now, it's not very popular to go against gay people. Uh, so now, well, what's the next best thing for them? Well, let's just let's just go after the, the transgender people. It, it, it's just ridiculous. Um, this is just an example of right wing Christian nationalism, you know, being, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly leaking into our laws. We're supposed to have a separation of church and state, but yet Christian principles and Christian values are being enshrined into our laws and that discriminates against people. I mean, in my state of Missouri today, just the governor Parson signed a bill, uh, you know, basically restricting transgender rights and uh, treatment for transgender children and adults um, and uh, restricted transgender kids to playing on the team of their biological, uh, you know, sex assigned at birth, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's just ridiculous. It, well, let's just call it what it is. It's a witch hunt. They want to other these people. They want to demonize these people because they don't want them to exist. Um, you know, it's not cool to be racist anymore. It's not cool to be a homophobe anymore. But it's pretty cool to be trans to be against transgender people. Uh, so they can they're they're getting away with this, unfortunately. And it's it's really uh, disgusting and sick. You know, this is the United States of America. We're all supposed to be equal under the law. Laws are not supposed to favor one religion or another. And laws are not supposed to target individuals and groups of people and separate them and restrict their freedoms. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is what happens. You know, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. So you know what? States have basically said, you know what, we can get if we can get in between uh, a woman and her doctor making decisions about her body and abortion and all this kind of stuff. Well, they can get in between you and your doctor for any other decision that they deem fit. If they don't like the way you're treating your transgender child, well, bam, they'll send CPS after you. You know what I'm saying? Like if they're going to make that treatment illegal. That is just interfering with people's freedoms and they know it and they're doing it anyway because the, the GOP is not for democracy anymore. They are for authoritarianism and fascism. We are slow. We are we are just like sprinting down the road to fascism right now. Um, and you can see it in red states like Missouri. I mean, there are kids, you know, and families moving out of state because so they can continue to get the health care that they need. But Carolyn, isn't that exactly what the GOP is after in these states? Well, they don't yes, want unfortunately, these that's likely, what it is. They're likely Democrat voters. They mm -hmm. want them out. They do want them out. And you know what? That's disgusting. This is not supposed to happen in the United States of America. We are all supposed to be equal. Um, you know, but the thing is, is that, you know, it doesn't really, you know, a lot of people are leaving and I understand why, you know, you know, if, if the, who you are is basically illegal, um, you need to go to where you can exist peacefully. I understand that. I don't, um, which is, it seems to be a state level issue though, Carolyn, yeah. Kyle, go I, ahead. 
I, w- I would disagree with you, Mark. Um, I, I live in the city of Chicago in um, a zip code that has one of the highest uh, LGBT populations between the two coasts. And I regularly hear peop- of stories of people who left other parts of the Midwest for, uh, for this very reason. And in fact, before the pandemic, um, it was uh, big cities that were attracting most LGBT households, as well as numerous other people, which is uh, why... My, my state of Illinois has had a brain gain at the same time that it's been losing people overall. I think, though, that one thing that is very different about the current situation, many of us in the country, maybe not everybody, knows somebody in their life that is, um, you know, that, that is gay or lesbian. And there's a smaller percentage of folks who are trans. And I think that that makes it somewhat easier to scapegoat or demonize than the overall LGBT population. There's also a wedge uh, between the trans population and you know, some, you know, some others in LGBT, uh, which can be exploited as well. And I think so those are all things I think in, that are, make the politics um, somewhat more favorable uh, in, in this case. I think that the period of othering will come to an end personally, but I think those are some dynamics that make this a little bit different than some of the othering that has come before. Uh, Jim Swift, your thoughts? I mean, I agree a lot. Um, I think until we get more towards the hyperbole uh, with Carolyn about the GOP, but I would like to offer, I think, a very simple explanation of what they're doing. What Carolyn said, mostly right, but what Kyle talked about, about the othering and the sort of discord between the LGB and the T is very real. And the GOP knows this, and they know that they lost the battle on gay marriage, even though they were successful back when we first did this show in 2004 with state ballot initiatives at the time on gay marriage. And they know that not all Democrats are on the transgender train, right? And Kyle said small. I mean, I would go so far as to say infinitesimally from a statistical standpoint, small. And... um, I'm not saying that makes it right. I think what the GOP is doing on the transgender stuff is way overboard, right? But there's less risk in them doing that to a populace. And what they're also counting on is uh, discord on the left. That's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank my panel, Mr. Kyle Smith, Mr. Jim Swift, and Mrs. Carolyn Brogdon for joining us. All opinions are those of the panelists and do not reflect the official policy of their employers. This program originates from facilities provided by KZGM-FM in Kabul, Missouri. Thanks to Ursula at the Pacifica Radio Network. I'm Mark Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. And I'll see you next time for not another Midwest Millennial Political Show. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about. 
something to talk to your neighbors about and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD.